Welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with great writers who've earned their independence. I'm Chris Best. I'm here with Hamish McKenzie and Nathan Bashaw, who talked to a very famous person this week who has a newsletter that I can't wait to hear about. Nathan, who did you talk to this week? Have you ever seen the movie Matilda? No. Yes. Just kidding. Yes, of course. I think everybody's seen that movie. That's amazing. Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes. Miracle on 34th Street. Especially yes. These are three of the movies that uh, Mara Wilson was in, who I talked to on the podcast this week. Um, she was the child actor that was starred in all of those, uh, probably most known for her role in Matilda. And um, she wrote a really wonderful book called Where Am I Now? Just basically about what it was like to grow up and do that and discover um, what she ultimately does now, which is writing and storytelling. Um, it was a lot of fun talking. That's right. She, she's sort of reinvented herself. She dropped acting and reinvented herself as a writer. Um, so, so did you get into that stuff? Did you ask her why she did that? Yeah, no, we talked about how she went from being a child star to discovering her love for writing and storytelling and how, how she decided that that's what she wanted to do with her life. Um, we also learned a lot of interesting things about like how she tells stories, like how she uses details to make stories more relatable, um, which you'd think a detail would make it maybe less relatable if the detail doesn't apply to your life, but turns out that's wrong. Um, and like how she takes feedback, all that kind of stuff. That sounds really fascinating. 400,000 Twitter followers. She's very active there. I see her all the time on Twitter. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So uh, let's roll the tape. Mara Wilson, welcome to the podcast. Thank, thank you, you so for much for here. having me. Yeah. So I want to kind of dive right in because um, I read a lot of your book and, and really loved it. And I think my favorite part was at the very end, there was a line where you've kind of told this story about going and having kind of a tough performance where you're doing like a storytelling gig and the audience just wasn't really your crowd and you're feeling bad and you go to this you know different performance that was like a burlesque show and all the people there were like fantastic and weird and just like your people um and you say this line that's just so poignant at the end which is people who are who choose to be vulnerable are rare and people who do it well are even more so and i'm curious just how did how and why did you decide to become one of those types of people? I mean, I think that it's, I, I think partly that it's kind of in my nature. I think that I've always been sort of compulsively honest. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm compulsively a lot of things. I have OCD. So, um, but I think that that's just always been who I am and that's always been how I express myself. But, uh, but I also think that I have a lot of admiration for people who are sincere and and honest because i think that that's a very scary thing to do and it can be a a it's it's hard and uh, i think that so it's something that i value i was also raised to be i mean my like the the priority that my mother had was uh, you need to be strong and you need to be smart and yeah. so i i tried for a lot of my life to be those things and i would almost find relief in these moments where i could be vulnerable there was a catharsis there and i was able to connect with people in in this really you know this really interesting way i've i i like people i don't like cynicism i don't like the idea of of posturing of needing to be cool i like the idea of of being open and and uh and letting letting people in and letting other people in, I, I find that is I find that is a really interesting part of art for me. I think that is the most compelling art to me, is uh, is letting people in. And that's not saying that you need to you know exploit yourself or or right. anything. I definitely believe in keeping your boundaries, but I, I definitely have admiration 
for for artists who are able to do that. Yeah. Like, was there a specific moment early on when you sort of realized you could do this? So when I was in college, I took these classes and they were both taught. Well, actually, there were multiple classes uh, and they were taught by uh, this woman named Marlene Pennison, who had done a lot of dance theater. And she was really a fascinating, interesting woman. And it was there was a class called Form and Content. Uh, and nobody really knew what that meant at first, but it was kind of a choreography class, kind of a directing class, kind of a just philosophy class, I suppose. And we learned to break down works in terms of form and content. It was, uh, I would say, like, you know, there are artists who really play with form. You get the Samuel Beckett's, and then there are the artists who really play with with story, and that's where you get, uh, you know, the Charles Dickens. I, I think that's actually a line from Understanding Comics, too. But, yeah, I remember reading that By around Scott the McLeod. same time. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, oh, I, and that I remember book. when I saw that, I thought, oh, that is a perfect example of form and content. And so right. we, we would do these pieces, and then we had another class that we called Creating Original Work, or COW. I think they later renamed it to Devised Works, because uh, that sounds a little more professional. But <laughs> we had, so what they would do is they would give us 10 minutes, and by ourselves, we would have to be on stage, and we would have, they would give us 10 minutes to basically do whatever we wanted on stage. So we would, we could do whatever we wanted within reason, as long as it didn't hurt ourselves or other people. And it had to just be us. But other than that, it could be anything. So people wrote songs, people did burlesque, people did mime, people did performance art, people danced, people did comedy stand-up sets. Uh, it, they did pretty much whatever they wanted. And it was great. And in the class, you weren't allowed to give anybody suggestions. You weren't allowed to problem solve for them. They had to problem solve their own issues and their own problems with it. Uh, now, first so it was semester, like no feedback whatsoever? No, we had feedback, but the feedback had to be things like, like uh, it was very, and it was a kind of feedback that I feel like the world would be a better place if we all adhered to it because you couldn't just be like, that was bad or you should do this. It was much more like, I felt like I was seeing this and then I saw this and I wasn't sure how those two things went together. Right. You talked about the work, you did not talk about the person. You never said you did this, you did that. You talked about the work as like independently from it. You, you sort totally. of started from a, a position of what did you see? What did, what did it make you feel? What most affected you? What most took you out of it? Uh, that that kind of thing. And, and you know, what... What especially, like, what were they going to, you know, what were they going to, uh, to, to try to accomplish with it? And did they try to accomplish what they were doing? So there was, there was, uh, there was a lot of that. And it was, it was a very, you know, welcoming in, environment as well. Then I remember my first semester there, uh, I did a project and the project went all right. My second semester, I talked about my relationship with my father, which, I mean, I think that most people have, you know, complex relationships with their parents, uh, even if they, yeah. you know, really love and get along with their parents. And so I wrote about mine and how it had changed after my mother died when I was eight and how, and, and how it had changed over time, especially since when I was young, I always saw myself as very much like, like a, a mama's girl. I was very much, I was a lot like my mom in terms of temperament and personality, but I, so it was, it was about, coming to get to know my dad and and accepting him as a person and being you know more open to it and talking about a relationship and i remember 
that day, that, that night that I did my first performance, coming into the room to do it and just immediately everything fell into place. It hmm. could not have done, it could not have gone more well. It, I, I, I just felt it from the very beginning, like, okay, this is, this is good. This is, this is something that's working. I felt very comfortable being in there and being in that position. And, uh, and I remember at the end, I, I turned my back on the audience and, and uh, I had music playing and the music faded out. And I know that this isn't true, but I still feel like the audience, the, the applause that I heard that day was louder than anything I'd ever heard in my life. Yeah. It, it just felt, it felt incredibly, it was overwhelming. And I realized like, I thought that I had done well, but I didn't realize that other people thought that I had done well too, and that it had resonated with them. And I had people coming up to me with tears in their eyes saying, you know, that was about my dad too. Yeah. And I, that was, I think when I first realized that sort of alchemy of, of sharing personal information and the more personal, more specific you get, because I mean, I talked about my dad's favorite song and what my dad wore and what my dad acted like, but the more specific I got, the more general it was for everybody, the more it appealed yeah. to people. So it's that's... crazy. It's crazy to me how, sorry, to... <laughs> but it's no, crazy to me how that, that really resonated with me where it's like you see someone else say something that factually like that, you know, you, you may have mentioned your dad's favorite song or some specific place you would go or whatever. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily have those exact same things with yeah. my dad, but for some reason it makes it more real and more personal to me in a way that I connect to personally. And, 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 uh, it, it's like, if you leave, if you leave it at the abstract level where everyone does have, um, that in common, or maybe yeah. a lot of people do, it doesn't feel as personal. Yeah, it was really, it was, it was, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how that works exactly, but I guess, but it's something that I've seen come up in work again and again. And I remember the next year I, I was doing a one person show and they said, make it as detailed as you can make it, yeah. make it as detailed as you can make it more as specific as you can, because that way it will relate to more people. And so that was something that I, 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 I took that to heart, I think. And I think that also made me realize just how, how much, you know, how you can take parts of your life and, and show them and portray them in a, a certain way and just have it, have it mean something to other people. So I think that that's, uh, that, that was really when it changed. And I remember I was like riding on a high for that. And I got an A in that class, which was surprising because in theater school, they, they don't give out a lot of A's. It's, uh, hmm. it's, you know, my, my, it's funny that the one semester in college that I got straight A's, I was not taking any theater classes. Right. Or I was, but they were like extraneous theater studies classes or they were, they were different. They weren't like in my, in my studio at NYU. They were, you know, they were, they were harsh judges there. And, and, uh, it wasn't, you know, it, it was a lot of times it wasn't about, you, you couldn't get a hundred percent. You couldn't get it that way. So, uh, it, it, I got an A in that class and I remember my professor Marlene saying that my, my performance was excellent and, uh, my friends all around me, and, and I got nothing but good feedback from that. And so I think it remains one of my most favorite things I've ever written. Yeah. Because, because it, just because of what it meant to me in that time and, and how it kind of changed everything. What did it change? It, it made me, first of all, it made me realize that I could be a writer. 
I had yeah. always wanted to be a writer, but I was too afraid because I thought that I was, I thought that acting was my thing and I felt kind of like I had to do it, which was funny because at that time in my life, I was not feeling confident in my acting abilities at all. But I, I felt like I had one thing that I could do, one thing that I was good at. And then, and that was the only thing that I could do, but I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I did not think that I was good enough to be a writer. And, and so that, that I think made me realize that, that I did have something there, that I could keep doing it. And I'd written other plays and I'd, I'd done other, I'd, I'd had other written pieces that year that kind of gave me hope where people would be like, wow, this is the first play you wrote. This is pretty good. Or, oh, I, this essay yeah. you wrote, this essay you wrote is great. I had sort of these, these like flashes of inspiration of like, I can do this, but it was, this was the first time that I realized that I could do it and maybe I was good at it too. <laughs> yeah. So that, that really, and, and that I'd, I'd found something there where I could be personal and obviously not, not getting, you know, too crazy personal or giving anything away about my dad or anything, but, but I could do this and I could affect people and, and it would feel good for myself as well. So, yeah. Yeah. So do you that, think having had performed it? Oh, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think having performed it made a difference to like how it made you feel? Because when I write something, even if like someone tells me they like it or I see like in the analytics, it's like, oh, that's doing pretty well or whatever. Right. Like it's just nothing, nothing feels viscerally satisfying in the same way as like applause. And I did a little bit of theater when I was in middle school and like I, yeah. I wasn't really like, you know, anything close to like what you've experienced with that. <laughs> but um, I do get I do know a little bit of what it feels like to like be a applaud and to have an audience right there um yeah i don't know do you think that made a difference i think that it did i mean i do think that it's much more it's instantaneous you get that instant feedback and i think that that is something in theater that i did not often get while i was filming in in film you know you do something and you put it away and just kind of look at the at the finished the finished product months later and as a child i think that could be almost disappointing to me because i children grow so fast and so quickly you know i if it came out six months if you stopped filming you know three to six months ago that's a lifetime to a child so totally so I think that that was something that I missed and that was something that I really loved with with uh, theater and that's why I did so much theater in in middle school and high school and college because I loved that having that instantaneous connection there and it felt it was thrilling because I got to be on stage taking responsibility for my own actions and it was terrifying and I guess I'm I'm an anxious person with a counterphobic streak, so so doing something terrifying like that is is kind of thrilling to me. So I think that that's uh, I think that 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 is is definitely something that had it, and that's why I did live storytelling in New York for so long, which gotcha. which is great. It uh, maybe not the most lucrative job, <laughs> but yeah. uh, but uh, I did it I did it for years in New York, and I I. Uh, somebody described me as like a fixture in the New York storytelling scene, and I wish there was more of it. Uh, now that I, now that I'm back in LA, uh, where I grew up, uh, never thought I'd come back, but never say never. Or I, I always say, don't say never, say never. Say try not to say never, because never right. is an absolute in itself. So try not to say never. I ended up back in LA, uh, but I, I wish there were more of a scene for it out here. I guess there is, but the one in New York is just really. It's really welcoming and warm and vibrant, and it feels like a really great place to workshop your stories and to to talk through them with people and to to really get a feel with an audience. And when it's going well, it really, I I just feel like nothing compares to it. Totally, it's interesting how different art forms kind of like wax and wane, and I feel like it's definitely on the 
ascendance, especially like, did you see um, Nanette, the stand-up? Yes, I did. On... Yes, I did yeah. see Nanette, and I amazing. I mean, yeah, I I thought it was great. I mean, it's so. I think there's. I think uh, yeah, Hannah Gadsby definitely has that going on. Uh, Chris Gethard is another guy who does it really, mm-hmm. really well. He had a show called Career Suicide. Which is great. I, I've done shows with him, and he's he's wonderful. There's there are so many amazing storytellers out of New York. There's uh, there's uh, there's one I really love named uh, Gaston Almonte, who's who's told some of the funniest, craziest stories about about uh, growing up in poverty in New York. And there's uh, there there are just so many. There's a really great place in in New York that I love called QED. Uh, and it's run by Christian Finnegan and uh, Cambry Cruz. They're a wonderful couple. They're both in comedy and storytelling, and they're just great people. And it's it's just an incredibly welcoming thing. Uh, I do think that you have to be careful. I also think Dylan Marin is another great person. And the New York New York Futurists are people that I've worked with, and that's how I got involved with Welcome to Night Vale. Uh, yeah. A lot of them, a lot of their work is based is based on personal stuff. But one thing that they do that I really like is I think that there is this sort of view of of you know, you kind of have to, to spill your guts on stage. You have to tell, do these painful things. And I feel like people do this on the internet a lot in a way that kind of concerns me. Yeah. I, I feel like a couple years ago, especially, there was, a, there was sort of this, this uh, confessional thing where people would tell their, their confessional story and they would give them, they would get 50 bucks for it. And, and then, you know, they're talking about like the saddest, hardest thing in their lives. And I think that, uh, I mean, I think that there's, there's definitely a market out there for that, which makes people want to do it, but I think that people like the New York neo futurists and and these storytellers can do it in a way where it's cathartic, but there's still there's still a filtering process there. Yeah, it's it's real, but it's not painful for them to do it because I think that that's one thing that you run a risk of if you're going to be talking about your life, your personal life, all of these things that you could end up hurting yourself or or hurting other people. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and you need to make sure that, that, you know, like, I, I think that self-care is about discipline. It's about boundaries. It's, it's about taking care of yourself. You know, I, I liked that at the beginning and the end of Nanette, you get to see, you know, Hannah Gadsby playing with her dogs and, and having right. a cup of tea, you know, there's that, there's that, that, uh, I, I, I think I read something the other day that said, it's okay if you have boundaries as a performer. And I think that that is so important. Yeah. There's there's stories, and I remember talking to Dylan Marin about this, and he said, "Do you ever tell stories on stage that are just really raw and 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 new?" And I do sometimes, but even then, they are things that I have talked through with family members first, that I have written down in my journal first, that I have talked through with my therapist first. Uh, there are times where I go up there and I'll talk about things like like you know my grandmother dying or or. Uh, you know, or, or coming out as bisexual to my parents or things like that, things that were difficult, but I will be able to, to share them in a way that is, is, uh, respectful of my own boundaries as well. And I think that that is incredibly important. Yeah. It's interesting because I think like part of the process of it, of, of coming up with it, it sort of helps you think through stuff. Like for me, certainly when I've gone through hard stuff, like I started a company that ended up failing and running out of money and I wrote a blog post about it. And, um, that was like, I've never felt more scared to like hit the publish button or the tweet button or whatever, when I was like sharing the link to it. Um, and, um, in the moment, if I had to like speak about it on stage, uh, that would have not been a good idea for me. Yeah. Um, writing, I think it's maybe a little bit easier because it's just a little bit 
more removed where like you can kind of craft it over a period yeah. of a couple days or weeks or months or however long it takes. Um, yeah, I'm curious like how you how you think about that where it's sort of a continuum and, and the first part of the process is maybe coming to grips with what you think about something and then the yeah. second part of it is presenting it to the world. Well, I mean, I think that that's kind of, that's, that's an issue that we have now with all the sort of knee-jerk hot takes. I think that there's a lot of people out there who don't, who don't, uh, who don't consider... I think who don't really consider the effect that this is going to have on them as a person. And this is why I, I really, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad, I guess, in some ways that I have self-doubt because I question myself and a lot. And I question, is this something that people are going to care about? Uh, there's, there's a, a really like important balance there where you have to say, is this good for myself? And also, is this good for other people? Because, and, and things need to be filtered before you put them out there. I think that there's a lot of things on the internet that just kind of are people sort of sort of you know throwing everything they have in into into something right away without thinking about filtering it and that's that can be dangerous i think for for yeah. everyone involved uh but i also think that and this is something that i write about in my book that you know you've read my my dad used to work at a radio station when he was in his 20s and the guy always said the the guy that worked there always said mike no matter what radio station you're on it's always wgas right so who gives a shit and so exactly. I, I have to ask myself that all the time when I'm, when I'm working on something, I have to think, is it, you know, okay, WGAS, who is going to care about this? And that right. was something that we did in, in, uh, in Cal class as well, where we, we had to think about, uh, we had to think about, um, doing, uh, we had to think about like. Uh, what what exactly like we had they would ask us our our idea proposal and then they would say what do you think an audience is going to get out of this I think there's and I think that there's definitely a, an issue when you pander too much to an audience but I also yeah. think there's a problem when you don't think of the audience as well I mean I've known people who who to an extreme will do will do uh, you know experimental art forms that are actively dangerous to the people around them. You know, they'll end up smashing lights or doing things like that. And and I don't like that. I also don't like the idea that you need to, you know, scare or shock your audience. I think that there are, you know, that it that just feels contrived to me, that the sort of need to yeah. be edgy. I think that you can be you can be evocative without being provocative, I think. Right. How I, how do you balance between like the kind of art side which is feels like it's more about uh something that you want to express uh with the commerce side where uh you want to succeed doing it obviously i think that you need i mean i'm i'm you know i am i am one of those people that the internet hates i'm an extrovert uh and <laughs> and so i i end up uh i end up talking to and yes i'm i'm i guess i'm i i'm fully integrated back into la society here i am talking about all my pop psychology nonsense uh counter <laughs> counter counterphobia extrovert whatever look but it, it works for me okay uh but then i i so i usually show it to my friends uh sometimes i show things to my publicist who is a wonderful intelligent person um i have I have four siblings and I'm close with all of them. So a lot of times they are my first readers and they're all very different people with, uh, and, and, uh, with very different, you know, thoughts and lives. And so they can all give very different perspectives on what it is. And they also all have an artistic streak to them. So they get, they, they kind of get how it works. Uh, and they won't, 
and they won't hesitate to be uh, to be critical with me. So, but in a nice way because we know that we love each other unconditionally. So that right. is definitely something that we do. I think that a- another thing that's really important is to learn how to take criticism, and that was something that we also talked about a lot in college. Is you need to be able to take criticism, even when it's hard, even when it's not nice. You you need to be able to to look at it and, and find the grain of truth in there. I think that being able to give and receive criticisms is one of the most important skills you can learn, not only as people who make stuff, but just as human beings. I think that there's a way of being critical uh, while while still while doing it in a way that will get people to listen. You know, right. and it's not necessarily about being polite or being civil or anything. It's it's about doing it in a constructive way. And that doesn't mean yeah. you have to be completely nice to people all the time, but but it is, I think, giving and receiving criticism. I say I think especially receiving criticism. I think that's definitely I think that's a problem that we have a lot in, in America and maybe most of the Western world is nobody wants to be wrong. Yeah. But we have to be wrong sometimes. We have to be wrong. We want to be the best. We want to be this. This it's a very, you know, that's a that's a very that's this mindset of like we want to be the best, we are the best. And when you assume that you are the best, you think that there's no room for improvement, so you don't listen to criticism. And that is dangerous. That means there's no room to grow. So I think that you you should always try to be open to that and accept that. And I feel like that's that's something that uh, is is incredibly important. I think a little bit a little bit of doubt, a little bit of self reflection is an amazingly powerful thing. Was there a moment when you were getting some feedback, maybe in school or maybe some other time, and you kind of first realized what it means to take feedback well or to give feedback well? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think if there was there was a specific time. I think that there was uh, there were times where where it was. I remember there was there was a class I took where I wrote a play and my my there was one kid in the class who was just like I don't like this at all this character's an asshole he's terrible I don't like any of this and they had to actually (laughs) like my teacher had to actually you know bring him aside and and I remember he was just going on and on and a friend of mine actually like put his hand on my shoulder like you're gonna be okay (laughs) while while he was doing it uh I think that there was also there was also a time and he he had to stay behind in class because my professor had to talk to him and say this is really you know this is really important get being able to give feedback in this way I also worked with a director my my uh I think, yeah, actually, this was probably the, the moment that it hit the most. My sophomore year, we had to work uh, as stage managers. And I'm a terrible stage manager because uh, we, did, we did stage manager, being a stage manager and also being a dramaturg. Now, dramaturg is basically you do all the research and development for a play. So you research, you know, the period costumes and the words and things like that. And sometimes it's kind of an extraneous job, but sometimes it's not. Uh, fun fact, I actually did dramaturgy for Rachel Bloom, uh, creator and star of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, for huh. production of The Wild Party at, at NYU. And that remains one of my favorite productions I've ever worked on ever. She was wonderful. We, we, we knew then that she was going to be huge. Yeah. Uh, it was, huh. yeah, that was one of the most fun things I've ever done. It was all me looking up. And it's, it's about a crazy party in the 20s. So there was a lot of looking up what kind of underwear they wore in the 20s and how to make it look like they're doing cocaine uh, on stage. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, that was so much fun. Uh, that but, doesn't sound like a bad job. <laughs> oh, it was the most fun. Yeah, there was like, we had to stage an orgy. And yeah, the orgy <laughs> logistics were 
It was yeah. it was one of the most fun things I've ever done. I think it was hard work, but it was really fun. Uh, and and Rachel just knocked it out of the park. She was wonderful, uh, so brilliant. But we so I was really good at the research and development aspect of things. I was not so good at the stage management thing, which is all about being on time and writing things down and being organized. And now I would have an easier time of it, but back then it was just way too hard for me. So I, I was, I was very disorganized and I worked with this, this, uh, this woman that, um, uh, I will call Laura and that was not her name, but Laura was really, to protect the innocent. yes, but she was, she was very, very strict and very intense. And I really liked her. I thought she was smart and intelligent and, and creative, but she demanded a lot of her actors and could be really cruel to them and could say things to them like, like I remember my friend Max says he came in because he was working on the show and we were in rehearsal and she turned around and with her back to him and said, uh, I'll turn around when you do something interesting. And, I'm picturing a certain character from Gilmore Girls. <laughs> yes. Yeah, kind of, kind of, yeah. She's actually kind of a hybrid of a couple of characters from Gilmore Girls. Very That's smart, funny. very fast talking. Yes, it was, it was very much, if it's, if it's uh, who I'm thinking of, yeah. Uh, she was, she was very, and she would do things like, like, you know, we would have rehearsal until one in the morning and then she would call me at 1.30 when I was trying to go to sleep because I had class the next day being like, why haven't you done this yet? Uh, it, it was not a good match, the two of us, even though, uh, even though I did have respect for her because I thought she was, you know, intelligent and talented. But uh, I, I just saw the way she treated it, and I remember, and it was all, practically a one-person show, this show. There, were, there was one person and then two other actors who were mostly there, but one, one actor was doing, like, the brunt of the work. And he, he was, I remember her saying to him once after he did the entire show, she was like, she was like, you murdered me with the performance tonight. You hurt me with the performance tonight. And him just being like, looking like a kicked puppy hmm. and, and being so sad. And, and I saw just how, how badly, you know, it was hurting these people and how was it affecting them? And the morale was so low. Uh, and after that, the end of that though, and, and she would say, I remember my, my boyfriend at the time being like, I've never met Laura, but I hate her. I hate her for what she's yeah. doing to you. And I, I was like, I was like, maybe, I don't know. But one thing is that she, she did actually teach me something. She said like, she was saying to me, uh, <laughs> she would say things like, when somebody tells you something, you nod too quickly and you say, okay, okay, because you want to make it seem like you're getting it and you want to make it seem like you're pleasing them, but you're not actually getting it all down. So uh, you need to actually sit back and listen before you respond. And I was like, well, that's kind of mean, but I guess that's also kind of true. Right. So, so from her, I learned kind of how to deal with these people. And also, and also I think I learned how to take criticism from people who aren't good at giving it, who, right. who just are naturally, that's just not what they do. Uh, but after that, I, I also saw just how it, it, you know, and I remember that her, her grade, they said your production was excellent, but you did not treat your actors well and you did not treat your production team well, and that is going to affect your grade. And the next semester, I remember I, I, I talked to the guy who was in charge of stage managing there and I was, and I jokingly said, Hey, you owe me one because Laura was known for being particularly tough. And he said, Oh yeah, don't worry. I'm giving you to, uh, this, this year you're going to be this semester, you're going to be a stage manager for Andrew Scoville. 
Andrew Scoville is one of the nicest people I've ever met. He's super successful. He's super smart now. You know, he's, he's, uh, and he's super successful now because he was a wonderful person to work with. Right. He was funny. He was kind. He was very intelligent. And when he needed, like, when I screwed up, he would be kind and forgiving with me. He would be like, hey, do you think you could bring the rehearsal props today? Thanks. You're the best. I'm so sorry to bother you. And I'd be like, no, I'm supposed to bring the rehearsal props to rehearsal. Of course, I'm going to go run home and get them. And uh, he was he was lovely. His wife, Jacqueline Bacchus, uh, they were both friends of mine in college, too. She's a brilliant playwright. And both of them and now they're they're doing all this like professional off-Broadway works and these all these regional shows and Jacqueline had a play that was a New York Times critic pick called Men on Boats which is fantastic and they're they're just uh, they're just lovely wonderful people and they learned how to work with people and how to give feedback well and I think I think that also Laura kind of fell prey to this thing of like I'm a woman so I need to be overly tough to prove mm. that I can do that, which is, which is, you know, which, which is in true in some ways. Women do have to be a lot of times be more competitive, be harder. But, but I think when I worked with Andrew Scoville and when I worked with Jacqueline, I, I kind of learned, I learned how to be able to be constructive and listen to people. And so I got this example of how to do it and how not to do it. Right. Uh, from them. And also I, I learned sort of how to take, because the thing is, yeah, sometimes you're going to have to take criticism from people who don't know how to give it well and are, and it can come across as cruel and you have to kind of find like, like the kernel of truth in there. You have to find a little bit of it and then kind of discard the rest. Uh, and yeah. so I think that I learned, I learned in college from, from that experience, those back to back experiences about how, you know, so I, I had the sort of, sort of, you know, this this low and then this high right after that. Totally. The like immediate juxtaposition probably was like super instructive. Yeah, and I and I wonder if they maybe did that on purpose. They said we try to give somebody and they said we try to we try to give somebody a job that's going to be a little bit more challenging and then we try to give somebody a job that's going to be a, a, a lot more fun. You know, stage managing. Hmm. They're like we we want you to give a we want a stage managing opportunity for you that's easy and then we want one that's for you that's a little more challenging and sometimes challenging just meant you know as opposed to you know you would do you would do like a one-act play and then you would do you know Shakespeare or or you know or or Sophocles or something a play that would be going to be longer and more complicated but sometimes it meant working with people who had reputations for being you know divas divos I suppose and and uh and so yeah I I got that, and I, I mean, I probably complained a lot and wasn't very happy with it, but I did learn a lot from it, and I learned a lot uh, from from having the good experience, too. I never imagined that loading in, uh, you know, a set into a theater could be fun. Right. But I remember, you know, uh, Andrew breaking out into, like, cheesy songs from the 90s and all of us singing along and having a great time, and... It was all about making a good, you know, having a good experience for the actors and crew and production team. It was, and it was, it was great. It, uh, it, it taught me a lot. So how did you end up going from theater to writing? Especially, it seems like, you know, if you really thrive in that kind of team environment where there's a lot of stuff going on mm-hmm. and there's the immediate audience satisfaction, all of that, like writing is, seems like challenging, like emotionally by comparison, where there's a lot of just like sitting alone, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that I do, I think that I do have a, a control freak streak. And I think that that is something that, that made me realize why I liked writing so much. I, I saw people there who were best when they were doing collaborative works, but I felt like, I felt like I did, I did really well with developing things on my own and then bringing them to a group. 
Like, yeah. I don't think I could have done the thing where everybody just participates in something and, and you have these devised works together. I think there are a lot of amazing groups that do that, but I always needed time to sort of sit alone and think and then, yeah. and then bring it to other people. So, uh, I, I think that I started doing that more when I was in college, when I started writing, uh, not screenplays, but I started writing plays. Uh, that uh, we had a playwriting class as well, and that that was another place where you learned feedback and where you learned where you where you got to do these things on your own and bring in your ideas. And I really liked that. I also really liked writing dialogue, mm. and that was one of the most important things for me. Is that I found that more easily than any other, more easily than any other kind of writing, dialogue came. Well, I think that maybe even speaking, uh, I'm stumbling right. over my words. Uh, dialogue came more easily to me than any other kind of writing. Prose, I would try to write prose, and it would come off very like Da Vinci Code, like she walked down the hall, and it it was awkward, and it was hard for me to to get into it. So, I started writing dialogue, and I I fell into playwriting there, and uh, and I I needed some space, I think, also to sort of to to do these things and work through a process by myself. I also I think for a very long time was uh, afraid of embarrassing myself. So it was good for me to go through a couple drafts on my own as yeah. opposed to embarrassing myself in front of other people. And then when I started doing storytelling, I think that that, that play that I did in uh, that devised work I did in college, <clears throat> I think that that project I did in college about my father made me realize that I could do storytelling. And I, I sort of knew that live storytelling was a thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, this American life and the moth and things like that. And I started... Once I was out of college, I started doing that. I started submitting these stories that I had. And uh, and that, I thought, was... And that was a really good place for me. And it was doing that and writing articles about about my life that got me... Got people interested in uh, me writing a book. Now, I had yeah. I had ideas of what I wanted to do. I've, I've always... I, I was working with teenagers at the time with this amazing organization called Public Color... And I really liked writing for teenagers and the way teenagers talked. And I was writing a play uh, called Sheeple that was all about teenagers too. And I think that might have been also because I had three teenage brothers <laughs> growing up. Yeah. From the time I was five to the time I was 14, there was never not at least one teenage boy in the house. And, right. and they had this, you know, so my childhood is sort of overseen by this, by this Greek chorus of teenage boys. So the way that teenagers talked was was something that uh, that I felt came naturally to me. Uh, so for a while, I thought maybe I would write a YA book, and that was when there was that big YA explosion. And but then people, it turned out people were more were happy when I was they they people liked it when I wrote about my life. And yeah. I started realizing that while I had preferences in the past for what I liked to write, ultimately I was just happy writing. Yeah. So while while you know dialogue was something that came came naturally to me, I just liked I just liked writing, and I was happy when I was writing, and when I was writing consistently. Uh, I was writing a blog at the time too, and the blog I liked doing it, but I also felt a lot of the times like I was doing a lot of it for exposure. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I I you know was a starving artist or anything because of, you know what my childhood was like, but it did feel frustrating that I would take time off from from you know jobs that I could have been paid for to be writing and and take in it would take me hours and hours and I would not get paid. So right. that was that was a bit frustrating for me I think which is why Substack has been so great. Uh 
because I actually I actually am getting paid for the hours that I'm putting in to to my work. But I think that uh, I think that eventually I was just kind of like I'm happy when I'm writing, so I'm just going to write whatever people want me to write right now, and uh, and that will be one thing, and then I will experiment with other things as well. So totally. yeah, so that's that's how the book came about. Uh, gotcha. I also, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, what kind of stuff are you interested in experimenting with that, like, now that now that you've done the sort of the book? Well, I really miss writing dialogue. So I, I do want to I do want to do more plays. Uh, I would also love to write for TV. I think that there's a lot of really great dialogue, you know, dialogue driven shows out there. That would be really fun. And that's that's definitely something that I would want to do. Uh I'm I'm not especially visually I, I'm not I don't have as much of a visual imagination as a lot of people I think so so doing something like a screenplay or or a graphic novel would probably be more challenging but mm. those are definitely things that I would love to do at some point yeah uh, I yeah I I like uh, I I love writing dialogue I love that I've thought about writing another book um, I kind of have ideas of where I'm going to go from there if it would be nonfiction or what. Uh, I I thought about doing YA again, maybe, but I also secretly love teen dramas, TV shows. Right. So yeah. I would love to have I, I would love to to have a teen drama. I think that would be really fun to work on. Uh, and yeah, there's there's a lot of that. I do miss theater. I miss writing for theater. Uh, I do, and and I I think I'm, I'm starting to have ideas of what would be what might be a good nonfiction book, but. I'm really just sort of open to anything right now, I suppose. Uh, I'm also writing a lot more articles these days for Elle magazine and places like that, or Elle.com, rather. And I'm having a good time with that, too. They, they, uh, they let me rant, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> right. Yeah. How do, you, how do you think about the difference between you know, using your own life and experiences as source material versus fiction? Like Maybe it's more similar than it seems, or I'm curious how those relate. Yeah, I mean, I, d I still do think that with fiction, for me, it's easiest when I let my characters speak for themselves. I think writing prose can can be... Uh, writing fiction prose, I think, is, is something that uh, I need to work at more, I think. I think there's always room for improvement. Uh, I think that it comes much more easily to some people than it does to others. You know, I think about, like, my friends, uh, Joseph and Jeffrey, who created Night Vale, and creating creating this sort of fantasy magic realism kind of world came very easily to them. Mm. Whereas I think that I, I tend to write things that take place in, you know, the, the real world much more, you know, or at least the world. I, and I think the real world is pretty fucking weird a lot of the time. <laughs> so I think that that's, that's something that, you know, and, and so I look at them and I'm like, okay, they're, they're more, you know, Guillermo del Toro. And I guess maybe I'm more, you know, Richard Linklater or, or something like that. And, and I, I also don't think it's fair to limit yourself, but I do think it's fair to take stock of where your strengths are right now. Totally. Uh, I, I mean, I also think that writing a book, writing a book helped me learn how to write in some ways. It, it, now I feel like there are these shortcuts that I, I make when I'm writing that where there's things where I don't do anymore. I, I get, I get how a sentence flows much more easily. Uh, something that would have taken me four hours to write now takes me, you know, two hours to write. It's it's definitely I think that practice and also working with an editor and working that that definitely and I mean I was very privileged to be able to work with an amazing editor, Lindsay Schwery, but I think that there's there's uh, I I learned a lot from that. 
So, totally. yeah, I think that there is something that is, uh, is, I, I think that it's, um, it's important to know, you know, what you feel most comfortable doing, but, uh, but I don't think that you, you do need to limit yourself, uh, very much. So, you know, I've never written anything. That's not true. I have written things that were, that were fantasy, speculative fiction, magic realism, things like that, but they, they aren't you know, as public yet. They aren't things that I've shown to people. Uh, but so, but there are, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to limit myself. I, I do believe in knowing your limitations, but I don't want to limit myself uh, right. prematurely, I suppose. How do you think of the different, cause like you've got a book out, you've got books in the works, you've got, you know, screenwriting stuff. It sounds like you're working in a lot of different mediums. Like how do yeah. you, how do you think about like the role that each plays in your creative life? Um, do you mean like when I'm working on it or, or, or yeah, how do like I know how which do you, one is how which? Do you, yeah, like what sort of, what sort of job is the newsletter doing for you? And what job is like a book doing for you? Like what, like, is there, is there a reason to have both or like, where do you shift your focus, I guess? And how do you decide to? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's very much, I, I think that one thing that's important is, is, uh, I, I think that the most, you know, there's that great line in Lady Bird where, where, uh, you know, the, the, like, head nun at her school asks her, says, you know, you obviously love this place very much. And she says, I don't think I love it. I think I just pay attention. And she says, well, don't you mm. think it's the same thing? And that was such a, a great line because I feel like that's exactly how I felt. Like, being, being, I think, being a, a writer for me, and I don't consider myself an artist or, or anything, but I, but I do think that, being a writer for me means noticing things and, and having, you know, and, and being able to, to notice these things and, and, uh, figure out what is what, and it can be really hard. I mean, I do think that a lot of it is trial and error. A lot of it is figuring out, okay, what is going to play here better and what is not. Uh, sometimes I think it's just time. It's, it starts out as something short. It starts out as something short and then becomes longer. And then you think, okay, this doesn't, this doesn't fit here in this way. I think a lot of it is also, audience you know there's things that i i put on twitter that i would not put on my public facebook page and vice versa there's there's you know you need to consider who your audience is you need to know your room and that i think is uh you know to read the room i I think that 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 is incredibly important but uh but i think yeah i think a lot of it is trial and error and a lot of it is sort of figuring it out and and uh and there are some things where i mean i have one piece now where i'm like is this a book? Is this a TV show? Is this a graphic novel? Is this a play? I, I have no idea. And I've gone back and forth on what it is. Uh, and I, I really like this idea, but I'm not sure how to proceed with it. Uh, and that can be difficult. But yeah, I think some of it is also, is also um, if you have an, I, a, an idea of a clear beginning, middle, and end, then I think that can kind of... If you have, if you have a framing device, that can help yeah. it. I mean, sometimes... Sometimes it's just like I wrote the play Sheeple with the the title in mind, Sheeple, and that that helped frame what I wanted the play to be about and what I wanted the play to be. And I I also uh, and but other times I'll know like I'll know something is a story, uh, and the way that I differentiate because I've had a lot of weird moments in my life, and I don't know if it's just that I've had weird moments in my life or that I have a. I've just noticed the weird moments more, but I think that uh, a lot, I have a lot of anecdotes, but there's a difference between a story and an anecdote, and this is something that I learned when I was doing live storytelling, is that the difference is that an anecdote is just things that happened, 
And you can use an anecdote in casual conversation. You can use an anecdote as part of a larger thing, but a story involves a change. Mm. So it can be a change in you. It can be a change in circumstances. It can be you realizing something. It can be, it involves a change in something. It doesn't need to be a change in you. It doesn't need to be, but, but there has to be a change there. If it's just listing, recounting things that happened, that's an anecdote. And anecdotes have their place as part of a larger thing, but their their appetizers are not the full meal. Right. So so that's uh, so that is something that I try to think about also. And I think you can you can make anecdotes funny. And I've thought like there are some some anecdotes. Like I, I've thought about you know things that I could share on Substack that are more anecdotes than stories. And I do think anecdotes sometimes play better on the internet because the internet is so fast paced. Right. But Anywhere else you need, you need that full story. Totally. Uh, and a lot of it, I think, is just kind of feeling it out. Yeah, definitely. It's like a, you know, an iterative process where you launch one thing and you see how people feel about it and you see how you feel about it and yeah. uh, it leads to the next thing. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it can be, it can be hard and there definitely were times that, yeah, and there are times like like in my book where I told a story that did not go over well at at because it was it was the wrong environment for it. <laughs> right. It was it was bringing yeah, us and, back to the beginning of the conversation with exactly. the Greenpoint terribleness. <laughs> yeah, that was that was oh, that was a terrible night for me. But I think another thing and one of the the best advice that I can give somebody who wants to be a writer is uh, I actually spoke to. Uh, a, a group of girls with this amazing organization called Girls Right Now uh, last year, and they were maybe two years ago now. Wow, they were wonderful, and they had me come in there to talk about writing. And I was a little nervous at first, but I told them, like, I told them a story of my first date with my first serious boyfriend, and I told it as an anecdote, and then I told them as told it as a story, and I asked them to identify the differences between the two. Uh, but then I told them, I said, okay, this is one of the most important things here, especially since you're all teenage girls and you've been gone, you're going through a lot. I said, you know, that really, really embarrassing, mortifying, horrific thing that happened to you. It's funny. Write it. <laughs> yeah. And they, they really appreciated that. And it's true. Like there's, there's, um, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to make this, uh, a, a subscription or, or public Substack, Uh, but, but I, I definitely need to write this. Uh, and it's about how there is, uh, despite having like grown up around celebrities, uh, there is one celebrity in LA that, uh, I see a lot, I guess. I don't know if he just comes to my neighborhood a lot or what, but I see him a lot and I have embarrassed myself in front of him. I think five times now, <laughs> I don't know. That's great. <laughs> I don't know why, but he is always there when I make a spectacular ass out of myself. And it's, it's come to the point where anytime I do something embarrassing, my sister starts looking around for him. <laughs> so, that's so wonderful. yeah. And so that's, that's something that is, uh, you know, and that's, that's, uh, it, and it's something that's, you know, horrifically embarrassing, but, but it becomes, it becomes this amazing thing. Uh, it becomes this, you know, and, and there's, there's so many stories that I have where I'm just like, like, I remember when I was first writing my book, I used to lay awake. I used to lie awake at night as a kid, hoping that nobody would remember the time that I learned about sex uh, and came to the set of Mrs. Doubtfire and started blabbing all about it. Uh, I used to think, like, I used to, to hope and pray every night that nobody would remember it. 
And then wow. what did I do? I, You've I kind of done the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I, but but what did I do? I, I came back and I reclaimed it and I and I framed it in this way. I I and now it's yeah and now it's the opening chapter of my book. So it's uh, it's <laughs> yeah it's funny it's and that's the thing it's it's funny it's embarrassing and it's uh, it's it's something that yeah that that I think is something that's really important that that awful embarrassing thing that happened to you is. Uh, is really funny. Totally. And it's a gift because I think there's a lot of people who go through similar or worse. And, um, you know, when you, when you see someone being able to own it publicly, it, it makes you feel so much less alone and it makes it feel like it's just a thing that happens to people and and that you're not actually an idiot or (laughs) like you're, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's that's definitely the kind of stuff that I want to go to, and uh, you know, that I want to to work with is this kind of this this idea of sort of you know being being more being inclusive and being like, hey, you're not alone with this. You know, there's and there are times I know that I that I can find that challenging, and there's times where I feel like you know these things can come across a bit cheaply, but I do think that there is there is is strength and there is you know really beautiful stuff in being able to say like, Hey, this embarrassing thing happened to me. Let's all kind of talk about it and laugh about it and, and do it. I think that there, there can be, you know, and I think this is something that comes up in the net. Uh, the, there can be self-deprecating self-deprecating humor. I think can sometimes be dangerous yes. because it's, it's, uh, it can be, it can, it can really hurt the person who did it. Like I'll see, I'll see sometimes, stuff on Twitter will somebody where somebody will be like, you know, like, oh, I just, I, the, 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 all their jokes will be like, I'm horrible. Nobody loves me and I want to die. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know if this is funny. I mean, and I do know that different things are going to be funny to different people, but sometimes I just get, I get kind of like protective big sister and I want to be like, are you doing okay? Yeah. Are you, are you sure you're doing okay? And so, yeah. I also think that it's important to realize that not everything is for you and not everything is for your audience. Like I, uh, I feel like, like, um, I don't read, I try not to read negative reviews of my work because I feel like a lot of these things I have said to myself already and a lot of my, the flaws in, in my book and my, and my work, I kind of know already. So I try to stay away from reviews in general. Sometimes people will send me the nice ones. Uh, and that's great. Uh, like NPR and AV club, they were wonderful to me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, um, I got, but like I remember signing up for Goodreads, and even if you don't want to on Goodreads, they show you the negative reviews of your book. Right. And I'm just like, I feel like Lisa Simpson, like, why would they come to my concert just to boo us? You know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of kind of thing. But I remember like one of the one of the most negative reviews there was somebody was saying like I I thought she was like really privileged and she was whining too much and and I she was and I was rolling my eyes at the at it the whole time and I remember being like, okay, well maybe some of that's fair. I mean I do I do tend to complain a lot. Uh, but I looked at who this person was and their favorite books, they, they listed their favorite books and their favorite books were like Fight Club and like yeah. a bunch of Chuck Palahniuk books. Yeah. And those are books that I can't stand. Right. Because, because I find them, I find them really, really, I, I, I don't like the provocativeness. I don't like the edginess. I feel it feels too in your face and too try hard and too much. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, my book is not for this person anyway. Yeah. Makes perfect not, sense. Yeah, so no matter what, they're not going to... Although I do think it's ironic that they're calling me privileged while, you know, loving a book about about how white male, you know, 
middle-class men have it so, so hard. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that's besides the point. I, I, I think that I was just, I was just like, okay, well, this just clearly is not for this person. You know, I'll, I'll also have people, you know, I'll, I'll comment on people who are like, who, who are known for being, you know, horrible abusers or something. And I'll have their fans be like, you know, well, screw you. You're awful. You don't have any talent, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, if you were defending somebody who is, you know, a convicted, you know, like sexual assaulter or, or abuser or criminal or murderer or something, if you keep defending this person, I don't know if I want you to like my work. Right. You know, yeah. if you don't, if, if you're still, yeah, if you are, if you are still, you know, d- defending whoever, like this is, this is something that's, that's, uh, I, I'm like, I guess I don't, I don't need you on my side. Totally. It's not for you. And that's the thing that I want to say sometimes to people is like, not everything has to be for you. Yeah. There's and I think work it's, out it there that like, is just not for me. Totally. It sounds like it's another way almost of like drawing a personal boundary is like, there's some things that you don't share. And there's also some people that their opinion, you just can't let in because if you let the entire world's opinion matter to you, it just, it would be crushing. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely struggle with this a lot. Like, I, I definitely, you know, sometimes I've, I've written about how getting compliments to me, getting compliments when I was younger was like having, it was like pouring water into a glass with holes in the bottom. And hmm. I think we do, t- we do tend to hold on to the things that, that are negative. We do tend to take them to heart. But I think, you know, I remember talking to my, my brother Joel about this. And Joel is, uh, I mean, he he's... My brothers are all amazing guys, uh, but Joel is, um, he works, he works, like, his job is helping people, but, uh, and helping people recover from things, but he is also uh, a musician. And I said to him once, you know, I feel like 90% of the things, the mean things that people say to me are things I've already said to myself. I'm afraid of that 10%. And yeah. he said, and he said, Okay, well, he said, well, maybe what's important is to look at that 10% and find something positive you can still take away from it. You, he said, the most important thing is to look at that 10%, see if there's anything in there that you can take something constructive out of, uh, and, you know, and what you can throw away. He says that's the most important thing, is finding those things that surprise you and facing, and facing them and, you know, admitting it. I think there's, you know, and... and acknowledging, you know, being honest with yourself and saying, okay, what here is a good point? What is something that I can acknowledge and, and that maybe I should reconsider. And the rest of it, I think is stuff that, you know, and to look at it and to throw away. And I think that's a really important thing to, to discern between, you know, what is, what is just trash talk and what actually matters. Totally. Uh, And I think that there's real strength in that. I think that there's, there's this very, there's this idea uh, that's, you know, I, I, like I said, I think it's probably very American and very Western. I don't know if it's like this everywhere in the world, but there's this idea that we can't ever be wrong. But I don't think that there's strength in that. I think there's better strength, you know, there's more strength in admitting that you were wrong and taking these things into account and, and changing your life and changing yourself, you know, and changing your point of view. You don't have to change your life, of course, for you know, in accordance with every piece of criticism that comes along. But I do think that it is important to take these things into account. I think a lot of people don't want to because cognitive dissonance is a pain in the ass. But yeah. I think that it's it's something, you know, it's, it's something to strive for. Totally. Well, I don't, I want to be conscious of your time, but thank you so <laughs> much for, for coming on and sharing all of this. This is, I think, hugely valuable. And thank um, you. where, where can people find you on the internet? 
Uh, they can find me at mara.substack.com. My, my substack is called uh, Shet We Tell the Vicar. My favorite substack name. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm still, I'm, I'm still jealous of, of uh, Daniel, Daniel Mallory Ortberg's uh, the Shatner Chatner though. I think that's amazing. That one's uh, But I mean, I, I'm, he's, he's amazing, and I'm jealous of him, and he knows that. Uh, but uh, everyone's jealous of him. Uh, but there's, there's, um, but yeah, that is, it is called that because uh, I, I love. British TV shows, and I have realized that that one of the most important parts of making a British TV show is uh, naming it something that has absolutely nothing to do with what the show is about. So, uh, so I and and coming up with these these absurd these absurd names, you know, like are you being served and and things like that. And so, I uh, I that is that is my thing. And I try last week I think I forgot, but I try to include a a BBC show name of the week every mm. time. Uh, things like, you know, Pippa Meets the Poors, or... Uh, They're all so it, evocative. This is what are, I love about them. You construct an entire world in your head based on a yes. very small number of, wor- of words. Yeah, and standing, you know, standing in fields with Noel Fielding. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, th- those ones were some of my favorites. I also loved Celebrities Shouldn't Be Running a Surgery. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite things. I watch, what can I say, I watch too much British television but uh, but uh, it's I'm I'm glad that I can finally put that to good use. Exactly, exactly. And I'm at Mara Wilson on Twitter. Too much on Twitter and Mara Wilson on Facebook. All right. Well, it's been great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for for letting me talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was our pleasure. All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mara Wilson. We'll be back next week on Thursday, as we are every week, with a new episode of the Substack Podcast. Until then, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your feedback. And uh, share it with a friend if you like it. So I will see you next week. Later. <laughs>